This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. have a good like life anecdote from the weed (laughs) new iphones (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are new iphones out there there are new iphones well they're on the way right on the way they're coming out well some the two less interesting ones are coming out this week that's the iphone (laughs) the iphone 8 and the 8 plus okay then the iphone 10 which is has a x in the name but it's pronounced 10 because roman numerals that is out in late October, early November. Welcome to Overdue Podcast. It's a book podcast about the books you've been meaning to read, not the phones. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew, and this is your tech update. New <laughs> iPhones. Gang, get ready. That's Yeah, that's what Andrew does when he's not reading books. He knows a lot about tech and phones yeah. and stuff. Yeah, so, so earlier, earlier this week, Steve Jobs' ghost got up. <laughs> a hologram of Steve Jobs got up on stage and was like, hey, dummies, look at these phones. You're going to buy them get out of here and then everybody did it was really it was one of their shorter presentations but you know that classic jobs brevity was on full display Mm, mm. did Mm -hmm. it i heard a phone stole someone's face is that true yeah a phone stole someone's face and um they it stole john travolta's face oh okay (laughs) and then it stole nicholas cage's face and then it didn't it now just has both of the faces this seems i bet you thought where i was was going with the the face-off thing, which I think we also have talked about a lot of times <laughs> on this podcast, but no, it just took their faces. It just took them away. And it's got a face-stealing them. feature. You know how some cultures believe that photos steal like some of your soul or something every yeah. time? Yeah. Um, this camera, the new technology in it allows it actually to work that way, oh, which great. is pretty cool, which is pretty rad. Didn't know that they added the Soul Eater update to iPhones. Well, you need it to like boost the memory and stuff. Oh, does it improve? Like, okay. really- does it improve the battery life? Because if it does, I think I'll, I'll take it. It does, yeah, Great. because okay. now in addition to a regular battery, it's got a soul in it, <laughs> a human soul. <laughs> Speaking of soul eating, uh, we're going to be reading. We're going to be talking about the Traitor by Michael Cisco, uh, which was recommended to us. This author in particular was recommended to us by Wesley, one of our Patreon donors. Thank you, Wesley. I am told with some authority that Michael Cisco did not write the Thong song. I am... that was not him. That was a different Cisco. Now. Who knows with face stealing technology what really happened? To be mm-hmm. honest, mm-hmm. but no, we do not have definitive proof that Michael Cisco wrote the Thong song. Um, he did write books that include The Divinity Student and The Great Lover. Uh, he is a writer of which weird... I assume is autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> it's an autobiographical series. He started as a Divinity Student and then he became a Great Lover. Mm-hmm. Um, no, he's a writer of weird fiction, Andrew. Yeah, he he's described what he does as a uh, degenre fiction. And yeah, that's he also not covered says, in mustard. It's D uh, like hyphen no, not, genre. No, not like Grey Poupon <laughs> fiction. And he also has said that he's interested in confusion, which if that's the case, he I think he's doing a pretty good job. Cool. Great. Um weird fiction, as we might have talked about before. It's been a long time since I read that Lovecraft book. But weird fiction in like the popular, you know, understanding of it really overlaps with Lovecraft. And, you know, you can look at it going all the way back to folks like even elements of Poe. Um, Lovecraft took a like a definition of it from Sheridan Le Fanu. Um, the true weird tale has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or a sheeted form clanking chains according to rule. A certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread of outer unknown forces must be present, and there must be a hint expressed with a seriousness and portentousness becoming its subject of that most terrible conception of the human brain, a malign in particular suspension of defeat, 
uh, or defeat of those fixed laws of nature which are our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. So, Andrew. Uh-huh. How much do you like weird fiction? Is weird fiction the literary version of weird Twitter? Because weird Twitter <laughs> I like weird Twitter I like sometimes. Okay. I feel like ghost story Twitter might be weird fiction. Ghost story Twitter is weird. I don't know that I've been directly like what is give me an example of what ghost story Twitter a is. A guy is in a hotel and he writes a forty tweet long twitter thread about how a ghost may or may not have come into his hotel room and he is taking photos of the hotel room that he may or may not have staged to look like a ghost had been there oh so it's people who are purporting to tell a real like i am here now and there's a ghost also with me here correct okay it's pretty spooky (laughs) i dig it but anyway, that's not what Michael Sisko does. He white, writes weird fiction. Um, he's born in 1970. He's also like he's a teacher, and he's also, as his Wikipedia uh, article says, a Delusian academic, which uh-huh. just that's... this is why like this plus the interested in confusion thing plus the Z genre fiction thing. It's all the hallmarks of a Wikipedia page that he wrote about himself. Very possible. Very possible. Uh, it also, I mentioned that specifically because you can tell in his writing, and I'm sure this shares some uh, qualities of, of folks like Lovecraft and others, like he is not just here to, to spin a yarn, he is interested in some like specific metaphysical philosophy questions that any fiction that he writes is going to like be run through that lens in the same way that if you you know, have a particular political bent or something like that, you might do the same thing. But he's not just out here like, let me tell you a spooky story. He's here to like uns- like unsettle your your feelings about humanity through his understanding of philosophy and he made a weird character to do it. I think. Okay. okay. His other his later books everyone says are like harder than this one so harder how like, like linguistic physically <laughs> yes they're made of steel uh and they're like the language gets harder the stories get more abstract and so like after we get through this one you can you the listener and you andrew can imagine what that might mean okay um anything else from his interviews that you want to touch on andrew I don't, I don't think there's a ton we need to spend a lot of time on just the the overwhelming impression is that he he revels in strangeness and disjointedness and i assume this book is going to be just as much about like structure and subverting expectations mm. as it is about whatever the story is actually about if it's a story about anything like, who knows anymore <laughs> it is a story about stuff it's not a seinfeld book and uh, i did find a quote from an interview where he was asked about tolkien because like we're you know you talk about this style of fiction and it's like is it horror is it fantasy is it neither um and what he where he like draws a line between the stuff that he writes and something like Tolkien, even though he really likes Tolkien, he says Tolkien gave fantasy world structure uh, where before they were as nebulous as fantasies. Role playing games are always are already prefigured in Tolkien because the structures are already there. Um, but then he goes on to say that he liked The Hobbit a lot more because it wasn't burdened with account quote burdened with accounting for the entire history of its world. So yeah, and, no, that makes that makes sense. And and this book, you can tell, and I think some of his later books are actually written a little bit differently. He wrote this one beginning to end, like he didn't jump around, he didn't do an elaborate like, here's what I think the story might be about. Here's all the population, the characters. He wrote. He didn't it. start from the end and work backwards. No, <laughs> and he he does say in some interviews that he's gotten to a point where he can like, oh, I want to write this scene that might be at the end. I want to write this scene over here. Um, but this one you can clearly tell was written it's all written from a character's perspective so he clearly just started and just like went and we'll see where it goes uh, all right neat you know it's just a different type of world building because it's not he's not actually doing that work he's just like here's a subjective experience uh that's a little weird and you're gonna find out 
you know, I'm going to find out what happens as I write it and then I'm going to revise it maybe and send it out to you. <laughs> so okay. Let's uh, uh let's let, okay, so one thing is I think based on the number of times we've said it during the intro, I am I think we should push to like explain more specifically what we mean when we say weird because just weird by itself is not maybe the most interesting description. Sure. No, I'm using <laughs> like, it. Like things can be things can be weird in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So I'll, I want you to be specific when you think something is weird. Oh, sure. About like how it's weird and why. Um, and that's my thing. So let's. Oh, why don't, okay, let's, great. Let's get in there. <laughs> let's really dig down into this here book. Now, who's the traitor? What did he betray? So the traitor is our narrator and main character. His name is Nafta. Nafta, the North American Free Trade Agreement. <laughs> yeah, it is spelled N O P N O. Hold on, we might need to edit this as I get the spelling because now I'm worried about it. There Don't it is. Cut nope. out my sick Nafta joke. No, we're gonna bro. keep it. No, Naf Nafta N O P H T H A. Okay. N O P H T H. So I think I'm going with Nafta. How about that? Why don't you just say Nafta? Nafta. That's easier to say. Uh, There's extra H's in there. He's old. Yeah, I know. But like, let's, for the sake of our, (laughs) this is an an audio medium and people need to listen to this with their human ears. So So he's old. He's dying. He's in like a jail cell somewhere. We don't know where. There's something wrong with his lungs. He's probably going to die at some point soon. And he tells us, the reader, that he's writing this story so that we know what happened. He tells us multiple times that we're not going to understand it or that if we don't, it's not his fault. But like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so already shifting the onus onto the reader yes. for not understanding the book. Yes. And it's, it's written like it's going to be some sort of testament to something he's done. We don't know the specifics yet, but the book is clearly going to flash back to that. And and that writing this story is taking effort because he is dying and he's got to summon the strength to get through it. And when you and I were talking last week, I said it reminded me of Beckett in some ways. We did a Beckett book very early on in the podcast. And it does. And it, was, it was one of the <laughs> one of his more bizarre yeah. ones, uh-huh. as I remember. And, and it's like very... Um, that book in particular, like the language is incredibly fragmented. This book is not quite like that, but you do have all, the the experience is almost like having blinders on because you are very limited to the perspective of the author character, and uh, he gets so caught up in his own brain at sometimes and his and his own thoughts that you might want a piece of information and he's just not going to give it to you. He's not he's not there to tell you the full story. He's here to tell you his story. Okay. So he start he goes back to his childhood and he says that one of the reasons that he's here is his uncle, his uncle Heckler, spelled exactly as you think, one of the easiest names in the book. And Heckler was sort of like a black sheep of of the family and of the community and it's an unnamed community. And this is because he worked as an apostate, which Nafta later tells us that he learned the apostates are the the members of the Society of Blankness. Blankness? Society of Blankness. Okay. And their job is to eat spirits. So Sounds like a pretty sweet gig if you can get it. Yeah, so he says that the society, which was the Society of Spirit Eaters, was comprised of persons whose souls were equipped, who knows why, with blanks. And so uh-huh. like, you walk around and you have this blank inside you where maybe I guess you don't have a soul, I don't know. And then, like, all the ghosts that are, like, making the room suck to be in, like, you just eat them up into yourself. So you've got, like, materia slots. Yes. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That you can put ghosts into and get their powers. Well, they don't have specific powers. It's not like a fire ghost and a water ghost, but you just... So what do you get from eating ghosts? So you do get what, like, this kind of nebulous energy, what I think at one point he refers to it as an animating force. Um, And this is something that, that rings true of weird fiction to me, Andrew. He's not spelling out the specific, like qualities or rules for why this works it's just a mm-hmm. thing it's a supernatural it's just thing a thing that, that happens. happens yeah uh-huh. so he fi- and you got it and so you gotta eat all the ghosts to get 
a high score. You do. You get the high score, and then you're running around the city. And then the part of, one of the few rules is that the Society of Blankness, you have to eat the ghosts, and then you have to go give the energy to like sick kids. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't just keep it for yourself because then you could like. I don't know. We'll we'll talk about what happens if you well, just what keep happens the- when you what happens when you give mean ghost energy to little kids. Well, you've converted the mean ghost energy into like positive life force, okay. and then you could you can literally go up to like a sick person or a hurt person and heal their wound, or I guess like kill the sick in them. So there's like multiple parts in the book where someone is literally actually injured, and not the like having recently eaten a ghost or something, like, puts his hands on them, he lays on hands, and the wound, like, completely heals. Heals him for 2d6. Yes, sure. Um, So this, his uncle Heckler, who is a spirit eater, um, he notices that Nafta, as a kid, is, like, he's secluded from his family. He is also a black sheep. His father beats him up a lot more so uh, said like more so than the other his bro- other brothers uh, none of his siblings like him um he is quote completely rejected by the world uh he's rejected romantically there's like a two-page like oh i fell in love with a girl as like a nine-year-old and then i saw her kiss a different boy and i was sad about it which on the one hand feels very cliched uh yuck. yeah on the one hand like why is this a special anything that makes you anything (laughs) yes on the other hand the way it's described is with this like incredible pain on the narrator's part but also this very powerful uh questioning empathy like he spends like a half page imagining what those people what these kids must feel like you know kissing each other and how wonderful it feels how painful it feels to not be a part of it and it overwhelms him to the point of him like passing out um, so that is, I guess, some sort of clue to how uh, in tune he is with people's feelings and the world around him. I guess a skill that makes you a good spirit eater. Um, okay. The, the fainting is also described as him, you know, being overall kind of a sickly person. So these are a couple of reasons why his uncle is like, hey, you know what? Why don't you just come live with me? Your family hates you. Just come live with me. Uh, and his uncle's friend Vio Vyo comes by, and they reveal to the kid that they are members of the Society of Blankness, and they're gonna train him to be a spirit eater. So they go to the apostate village, and you'd expect like a Karate Kid training montage, right? Like, or like a Pokemon journey of like learning how to capture ghosts. I almost don't. I don't know that I do because. It sounds like this is all about innate talent. So you just like mm, go sure. to a to a haunted place, and your your uncle, Hunko or Huckster or whatever his name is, <laughs> Heckler, yeah, um, takes you into a haunted house, and he's like, "All right, kid, dig in. <laughs> Here's a ghost." It's it's not that great. So what he does is he spends like I guess a couple weeks just pouring really cold drops of liquid into his eyes. Like, so much that his eyes never stop hurting throughout the entire process. And they make him, like, stare through pinholes in pieces of paper at stuff to, like, strain his eyes to the point of exhaustion. And then the final trial is they place a mirror, like, two inches from his face. And they, like, strap him into a chair. And they just make him stare at it for hours, days, I don't know. And it... Like it is described as first he just sees his reflection and then his features start to like melt away probably because he's just kind of losing it a little bit. And then the whole mirror just goes like blinding white light and he sees nothing. So like I guess now he's blank inside and (laughs) there's room for ghosts. Okay. It sounds like either they're training him to eat ghosts or they're training him to be really good at magic eye posters. <laughs> Probably both because maybe through every magic eye poster are ghosts. Maybe that's where they live. Maybe that's what you're seeing is you're seeing ghosts that are in the shape of like a train or something. That's probably it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been bad at those books. I've never been able to make them work. It might be because I'm partially colorblind. I can only see some of them. Like I don't know what makes some magic eyes easy and what makes some hard but I could see some like really well and then others I could just never 
Wait, figure out. When you say it like that, is can you level up at Magic Eyes? Can you I don't get know. better like, at I don't them? know if it's a thing you get better at or if, like, I understand the underlying science so poorly. <laughs> like, as, as is usually the case with me in science, I just don't know. I don't know how to describe my level of skill okay. at Magic Eyes. <laughs> Mine is just bad. That's what I'll say. Uh, so after he becomes a blank kid, they send him to the city, which is, like, unnamed, and he learn he goes it's kind of like he's going to school and he's like learning to be a spirit eater and this is where he learns that uh the the towns that he is from or whatever they are ruled by a, a foreign people called the alex a l a k s uh they invaded at least four generations ago installed a governor so it's sort of like a collaborator government um and the alex you never really see them you only see people who work for them and they're they are not a like overtly conquering people. They say their message is love, and that they were chosen to rule because it's ve- it's like they are gov- <laughs> they're governing through what a very hard power that d- is disguised as soft power. So okay. the when they crop up throughout the book, the narrator is quick to remind us that like when people do bad things to each other, if you like walk the cause and effect back a couple steps the alex are at the root of it but they've always kind of distanced themselves from right just enough to maintain plausible deniability yeah and and that gets to some of the inherent uh cynicism and nihilism at the at the heart of the book where the he starts talking about how the cornerstone of civilization is our ability to torture one another Mm -hmm. and that our only hope when we are tortured is that we will grow strong enough to become the torturer mm-hmm. uh, to stop me. If you disagree at any point in this, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good and I'm cool. Uh, so he learns this about the world. He goes back home and his uncle has died and Vio was oh, killed. No, uncle Hunko. Uncle Hunko Huck, Heckler was killed and Vio was killed in a traffic accident and like left in the street for three months uh and no one told (laughs) and no one told him so these were you know spirit eaters are necessary but they are not beloved right they're they're different from us they're outcasts that we keep around to to eat the spirits in the city Uh um and so they both die and no one wrote him a letter no one told him anything and so he kind of is like everything sucks everybody i'm why didn't anybody tell me about any of this uh, my family disowned me because I eat spirits now. Like I'm out. I'm done with humanity. Um, I learned it from watching you, Dad. <laughs> it's true. He does become a successful spirit eater, uh, such that the Alex actually hire him as a spy. So he would. He goes. So, yeah. Like, what is what is the level? It sounds like the level of awareness of this phenomenon is like pretty high in the, among the general populace. Like, it's just understood that. There are people who can eat ghosts. Yes, and they're kind of creeps, but you'd need them so you keep them around like spiders. Yes, here's the here's a description of a town. A town filled with spirits is oppressive. The memory of such towns is too good. No one can forget. Nothing goes away. Death hovers everywhere. Fragmentary remains of grasping lives poison the air. And as soon as a space is cleared, it is newly infested. So, like, I guess people are just dying all the time and haunting every crevice of every building. And it it is palpable in the world around you, so you hire these Ghostbusters to come in and like nosh on all the ghosts for you. Got it. Um, but because he's so good at this, he he will go into places. He'll learn things about people, and then end up selling that information to the government. And then those people like get arrested. Um, he is a, he is the traitor. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Gotcha. Um. So what ends up happening, the book kicks into gear when he encounters this dude named White, uh, who is a foreigner from another place who started out as a, soul, as a spirit eater, but now is Andrew. He's a soul burner. Yo, that and sounds cooler. So he is. Did you remember? Did you get? Did you have Soul Burner on your Super Nintendo? <laughs> I thought it was a file sharing software. Was that named after the Super Nintendo? Yeah, game? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Uh, he is what is someone who hoards spirit power. So like he eats for him for himself for himself, and he's doing it to like overcome human limitation. He is evil 
but not a not a explicitly malignant evil. He's more an indifferent evil. So when he killed someone years ago, it was because he like could not because he hated the person, not because he cared whether they lived or died. It was a guy who was smoking. He doesn't like smoking, and he like I guess shot him with spear energy and just murdered him. <laughs> And so then he's like, I mean, that's one way to enforce no smoking rules, <laughs> I guess. I know. So they, uh, the government gets together, like we gotta find this white guy. They put Nafta on the hunting party. Can you spell white for me? Sure, W I T E. Okay, I was trying to see if there's any like ghostly wordplay going on. Not like ex- either, either in color or in like zombie synonyms. Yeah, no, and the names only get tougher. So just hold on to that. Um, okay, the book will take on a like Jesus and Judas relationship between White and Nafta in a few chapters. It's okay. not a it's not an explicit allegory and it, it reduces the book if you try to like graft it onto every chapter, but it is a useful character dynamic to think about. So Nafta goes out with this hunting party. They're gonna find try and find White. When they do encounter him in the woods, he looks like Goku from Dragon Ball. Like he has like <laughs> there is described a transparent flame all around them. He is like kind of like ninja teleporting around all the dudes on horses. Um Again, it's unclear like what the level of technology in this world is. People have guns, which seems, but there are blacksmiths, so that's about where we are. In, I in mean, terms people of, people have guns, but there are blacksmiths. No, but like there are no, there aren't in cars. The, so I think like guns are the most advanced thing people have technology. How like steampunky is this, or is it? Do you do you have a sense of where what time it takes place? That's, in? Yeah, that's trying. Tom trying to get at. It's in this. Okay. Made up world that he doesn't really flesh out on purpose. There are cities right, like we talked about. There are cities that he hates. There is a lamp at the end of the book that's like spurs a bunch of action that appears to be electrical. Um but so we're probably in some pre steampunk stuff. Uh we we're we don't have engines yet, I don't think. But we're close. Okay. So anyway, they go to hunt Goku from Dragon Ball and he kills all of them. Like dudes are smashed against rocks, horses are ripped apart. Um one of the hunters was the local prince, uh which seemed pretty ballsy of the prince to go out there and and hunt this guy. And Nafta watches White just tear the soul, dude's soul out and just eat it right in front of him. And there was an opportunity in that exact moment for Nafta to shoot White and he didn't. And so then in the next, like he turned the page and he starts defending himself to the reader. He's like, it was a miracle and no one who's ever seen a miracle can understand what it means to see one. Um, You can't understand why I didn't shoot. I wrote that I chose not to, which is a stupid, irresponsible thing to say. I watched him uh, turn to the prince, rip his soul out, extinguish it and devour it. Don't look to me for explanations. I can only say that he was demonic. He was filled with demonic ruthlessness and I could not shoot him. I did not sure. I did not shoot him then because I worshipped him then. So now they are like partners in soul crime. Uh on the <laughs> lamb, running through the woods. White is like close to death, but he he can get renewed if he eats souls. And uh, Do you get like addicted to souls eventually and you like need them more to uh, survive or what's the Yeah, not there? quite that you need them more to survive. You do need to eat food which they both find really inconvenient. Um and in particular they Is s- it hey hey is it is it is it soul food? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's Um and they they're very like frustrated by their physical forms, White in particular, because he's trying to transcend all this crap. And his plan is that he has to go back to his home country, Hypixth? Hypixth. Okay. Where the problem is... Not going to ask any nope. follow-ups, because we're just going to go Yep, if you're from Hypixth, you can't die outside of your own country. Like, you have to go back there to die. And so... Like you- can't or you're not allowed to or you you literally if you like get wounded you'll just lay there dying forever oh so if somebody like lops your head off and throws it in a river it's just your body and your head 
yeah. live until you can get back home. Some, yeah, so like usually you don't leave there alone. Like you go there with a buddy, and then if you die, your buddy takes you home so that you can die. Jeez. <laughs> uh, so his plan is to go back home, visit his cousin, and then like kill himself there so that he can end kind of the pain he's in from all of the soul burning that he's doing. Rad. Rad. They get back there. They meet his cousin, Tzidzi. T-Z-D-Z-E. There are not enough vowels in that name for casual pronunciation. At what point are you just reaching into that Scrabble bag and pulling out <laughs> letters? I don't, yep. I think Michael Sisko played the, wrote this book while playing Scrabble and just shuffled all the letters around. Tzidzi's sister is Ekshiti. X X C H T E X Chitty X Ecstasy. Why don't we just call her X? Let's call her X. Uh, so T and X are people that we're hanging out with, uh-huh. and we spent. This is like uh, this is like the middle part of the book. We're hanging out at T's house, and they start living there for a little while. White spends most of his time out in the woods. He does take a break to show Naftra the like tomb, like the cave in a mountain where he would like to be laid when he finally dies. Um, again, the Jesus thing. And while White is sorting out his business, T and Nafta spend a lot of time playing backgammon, of all things, mm-hmm. hanging out, telling stories, telling stories about their lives. Uh, and one of the uh, main stories, so like, Nafta admits he had a wife. She died. He has a son. They're estranged. Like he just perpetually has these connections with people that then just like fall apart. And the only two people that he now ever feels are like worthy of a connection are White, who he's like worshiping and obsessed with, and T, who he loves but like claims it's not love as you would understand it. Which okay, sure. Okay, okay, buddy. <laughs> uh. And he tells this story, and this goes back to something I said earlier about the, the power structure in this land, where there was a resistance group called the Partisans that showed up. They retaliated against the Alax. This was while Nafta was still working for them explicitly. Um, the resistance group captured some folks, and then the Alak government uh, like killed some of them, including people, people that Nafta knew got killed. Um, and he's pissed that the partisans caused it, even though they're explicitly on the like right moral side of what's going on. And mm-hmm. so he goes with the government to kill a bunch of the partisans, eat their spirits, and then use some of the energy to like heal a wounded Alak guard. And so he's been conscripted into restoring order, and his hatred for the violence caused by these partisans like overcomes his hatred for his oppressors. Um And here's a quote. Now I understand how these abominable cities keep going, how they can even get someone like me into the act when they offer the victim his chance to be a torturer himself. And that's just a classic tool of oppression, isn't it? Sure is. Split people up and turn them against each other. Uh Uh, Uh-huh. And that, that abominable cities line or like how disgusting cities are is a refrain in this book. And I don't, as someone who lives in a city and by and large likes it, I don't jive with that. Um, it's it is a it is society collapsed in on himself on itself like so densely that seems to really bug the narrator. Yeah, like I I don't know. I see that he lives in New York and born was born in 1970, and maybe like his first impression of a big city was not like awesome growing up. I I also if, if, if he I don't know that he was he grew up in New York in the 70s, but that's Sure. Like a bad, a bad place to grow up. I also am not, I'm not comfortable ascribing too much of where the narrator is coming from to Cisco. That's that's fair because it sounds like I don't like he's not talking about his own experience as a <laughs> soul eater ghost boy. No, and the uh, the the voice of the book is you can almost. It's like a character that Cisco is trying on and he's just like writing this like inner monologue of this character's story. So he is what is tough is that you're like, oh, you're this person who was shunned from society and a bunch of bad stuff happened to you. And now you're caught in the thrall of this like evil spirit man. 
and like I should pity you and perhaps like want you to have a better life but you keep saying terrible things about humanity and there's this like gulf between at least where Craig the reader can like meet you halfway like I, okay. I'm not sure I can meet the narrator on the other side even though like Cisco has done a lot of work to set him up as the type of character where you're like oh yeah I could see how this would be hard for you um so he develops this relationship with White's cousin T um, they share these stories with each other, and then he has a dream where he is in the basement of a house, which is like a mausoleum for their ancestors, and it's predominantly T's ancestors, but obviously some of them are related to White, and he like wakes up, and he realizes that White is like sitting on the foot of his bed, he drags him down into the mausoleum, and he starts eating all of the ancestors' ghosts out of the basement... <laughs> <laughs> just chomping on him and they're like screaming You're supposed to save those for an emergency well it does become an emergency but at the time uh nafta's like what is happening and he vows to like not hurt t by telling her and then of course while they're playing back game and he just like blurts it out he's like i was in the basement with white and he ate all your family's he ghosts ate all your f- all the family ghosts you were saving in the big fridge alongside all the frozen dinners <laughs> And the ice cream treats. That's where we kept, like, Otter Pops. We kept them in the fridge downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he ate all that. He ate all of the grape juice that you were hoping was would turn into wine that you had stomped yourself. Like, it's like a whole thing. Um, and <laughs> he, uh, the narrator then, like, in that moment, he realizes that he's really hurt T by telling her this part of the story. And he says, quote, this is why oaths are worthless. It's possible to swear to anything in complete sincerity and be compelled immediately to break that oath without ever once taking the trouble to be deliberately two-faced. So the the point he's making, and I think something that the book is overall exploring, is that like people can change in a moment and in an instant in a way that often makes us uncomfortable. Like we are... I think a lot of us really want to be consistent. We want to have integrity. We demand that of other people. And the world explored in this book is one where like, it is very easy for that to not be the case for like, you are just up, up and you look at a person, you see a situation and you don't have time to weigh all of the stuff that you would like to weigh. And you just act or you just say something. Sure. You seem. I mean, this is a very un- no. It's just a very abstract way of exploring that particular <laughs> that particular aspect of humanity. He just. He also sounds like as a character, like he is way into assigning blame for his own actions to other people. Like so, he he has this person who he follows and already feels a little guilty about following, and then he watches him eat all the extra ghosts that they had put away for winter out of the basement. And then he tells the person whose ghosts they were that, that the other guy did that. And then what he feels bad about is like, Oh, I shouldn't have told you cause I made you feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and he does, I, I was just trying to find the quote. I, I can't think, find it. I think it. you're several, he's several yeah. degrees removed from the thing he actually should be worried about he does he does like entertain that a couple pages later i'm just trying to find the quote i couldn't find it but it's like uh he recognizes that if you look at the events differently in the way that you probably should uh he is responsible for white making it to this house he is responsible for the you know in one way shape or form that whole hunting party that encountered white in the first place Uh etc so yeah Uh um so a bunch of people who've been hunting for white finally show up. They're going to, the Alax show up to try and get him for like eating that prince's soul and stuff. And uh, the sister or the cousin rather is like, go lock him downstairs. I'll try and get these people out of here without anyone dying or something. I don't know. And uh, of course he ate all those ancestors so that he would have spirit power for the attack. Andrew, he like kills them all with his mind. He never leaves the, sure. s- the locked up stone room. But he re- he's all hopped up on ghosts. Yep, he reduces them to a bloody mess. Um, and his cousin later then, like, because she's scared of him, tries to poison him. 
it doesn't work because he's immune to it with ghost power. Uh, so, or is it because he's not home so he can't die? Uh, it Probably a little bit of both, but it's more specifically that his ghost powers are making him immune to poison. <laughs> okay, that's that's... <laughs> Remember, ghost I'm power can remember. be used to heal people and heal sickness. So, okay. I'm just trying. Like, I don't think ghost and poison type and Pokemon mm, sure have any particular relationship. Like, I think they're just both the regular amount of effective against each other. So, there are. I'm just. Ghost, I'm feeling. I'm Pokemon, a little right. Yeah, yeah, there are. But like, poison is a secondary type of a lot of different Pokemon. So okay, like, it doesn't sure. necessarily mean anything. I'm just saying I'm a little unmoored because <laughs> this is pretty far from my understanding of both ghosts and poison. Something that is underexplored in this book is the idea that to which he could be collecting ghosts. They are they are consumed. They are not like yeah. Kept I really in their do want to know if he's like playing Yokai Watch or something. <laughs> Uh, so she tries to poison White. It doesn't work. So she enlists Nafta's help to kill him, and they take him out into the like mountain area where he wanted to be laid while he was dead. You know when he dies, and he stabs him with a knife, quote unquote, killing him. Who knows? Lays him in that tomb, and then a couple years go by before he comes back. And of course, he is like he T invites him back to the house several years later. And there's like a vibe out in the mountain. And so our narrator wanders out there and discovers that like White is now effectively a ghost himself who claims that the mountain is his body. (laughs) He thanks our narrator for killing him and he tells him that he must tell everyone about him. So this is when it it is like an evil gospel where now you must go out and tell the world about your evil mountain god uh, who tell is... Tell him what, though? Like, he ate all my family's ghosts, he killed a <laughs> bunch of people, and now he's a ghost. So, yeah. Like, what am I... How is, well, what's, what's the actionable information in this gospel? So he's not explicitly a ghost. Uh, he, at this point, from, from now on, he's referred to... He's referred to as white, but, like, he is described as the mountain or just kind of like an elemental force out to like hurt stuff. And the telling that gets done, so the rest of this book becomes this kind of gospel pilgrimage uh, and conversion series where he meets people, (laughs) tells them about white, and it's really, the book kind of glosses over what that means, but I guess it's like, hey, there is this malignant force that's going to end all this, and if you're not willing to like embrace that, then it's going to get you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be the people he is he ends up reaching out to are these outcasts, are these downtrodden individuals. Um, contrasting that with this this passage that where he says, I feel nothing but impatience and despair when I'm surrounded by flaccid, helpless city people. Same. Shapeless, confused lives of flaccid, helpless city people carrying on flaccid every day. Every day is shapeless and confused as the next, and that will last from day to day forever to the grave and beyond. So, dim view of humanity, my dude. The the mundane Also really, like, pointed use of flaccid. <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. Just an impotent existence. Uh-huh. Weaponized impotence, yes. Um... So he like he goes to this one small village and tells a guy named Felix uh, the the evil gospel of uh, White and Felix is like get out of here and he throws a rock at the narrator's head and then magically rocks fly from the woods and kill Felix and like a whole bunch of people in his town good cool I guess neat, neat. Uh-huh. Uh, he goes to another town where most of the people spend, like, they send their kids out every morning to harvest, like, crappy blue mushrooms from trees and then eat them. And it's, like, described with such painful mundanity that he can't bear it. Uh, a little boy runs out at night to meet him. They've, like, broken his hand, I guess, because he was bad. He heals the boy's hand, tells him it has to do with the mountain god, White. And the boy's like, let me come with you. But first, can you heal all these trees so they'll never have cracks in which the the fungus can grow and i guess now my town has no food cool let's leave we ruined a whole town's food supply like they go on a journey of just wrecking stuff just wrecking 
lives of main of mundane society. I think I've lost the thread. Sure, because it gets picked up where the book basically becomes Fight Club, Andrew. Oh boy. Yeah. Of course it does. So the disaffected people of this town named Loloth, uh, they the first person that they recruit is a uh, like a blacksmith named Blunder, who was named who was named such because his parents didn't want him. He was sent off as an orphan to a blacksmith who then died and he took over his stuff. Um, then he re- he recruits a bunch of other people who all have been like treated poorly by society both like people who were very close to them and society writ large and it culminates with uh blunder like knocking down the water cistern and you know destroying the town's water supply and then uh they light up this big lantern so that all the outcasts know to flee the city and this giant like flood caused by white like completely reduces the city to dust uh Mm. And and then the end of the book is after a couple other similar incidents, he gets captured and is like writing this testament to his betrayal before he dies. So it does the end does get this like, oh, we are out. It feel it does feel very Fight Clubby. Uh, like oh, there's this charismatic, destructive persona that I am obsessed with. There was one person. Uh, the cousin T that I became enamored with and then when I like ruined my relationship with her because of the first guy then I'm just turning my whole my back on the whole scene whatsoever Uh, and now I'm out like converting people to a thing I don't even have control over whose end goal is just yo let's destroy everything so give it up for the end of civilization. <laughs> yeah. uh, so my question for you, Andrew. Oh boy, what's this going to be like? What do you hate most about humanity? <laughs> what do I hate most about <laughs> humanity? Just to entertain the question. Because this guy hates almost everything about them. And so he betrays them all. Um, he was once part of them. And he betrayed and betrayed. And he, quote, I could never betray you enough. Um, so what do you hate about humanity? He hates that they're all just flaccid city people who live on top of one another. And, uh, there's this like crazy amount of difference that he doesn't like. That's a thing. Um, very Lovecraftian, but like, what do you hate most about humanity? I mean, besides our propensity for later, for like pretentious literary fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't know. Like, if I had to pick a thing about, like, humanity writ large, like, that, his hatred of them seems really, like, pointless and nonspecific. Okay. I I would say maybe our fear of of differences and fear of the unknown and our, I don't know, how, how we sometimes act in our uh, what we we act in our own interest without like considering how it might affect other people and like we do that to an extent where we end up hurting ourselves too a lot of the time yeah i buy that i, I buy know. that just just like you know what i hate was what people who walk slowly at the grocery store oh bleh, okay yeah, i was gonna, yeah, I was gonna if we're just going a stupid <laughs> like jerry seinfeld Paula Poundstone bit or whatever. Like, I hate, I hate people who throw their Wendy's cups out of the car window. No, I'm with you. I hate that. I hate people who make too much out of difference. I hate that we can't seem to find a way to to collectively grapple with difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also. I hate people who lean their seats back on an airplane. I do. Hate I'm tall, that too. and I need to use my laptop. Yeah. Please just sit straight. I get that. I hate litter bugs. I also hate that we can agree on facts. Like I hate that our own subjective experience means that we can't participate in an objective one. Well, that that tendency to to. 
trust your eyes or your brain over what other people are telling you, which like to some extent, like, yeah, some skepticism I think is healthy. Sure. But there has to be, I don't know, there has to be a, a cap on it. Or there... <laughs> I hate how, I hate how, uh, like recursive that can be where it becomes well, this like defensive how... thing. Yeah. And there, and there have been studies about this. Like I, I hate how, how people like dig into their own, beliefs and like even when presented with information like what would objectively be considered factual information that counters those beliefs they just like dig in more like yeah pretty much like pick a thing about the (laughs) anti-vax movement sure or like homeopathy maybe and just like that just that is the thing that i hate the most okay good so I, one reason I brought that up is because the book in the last few pages starts using, like, starts addressing the reader more and more often. Um, and in an interview when he was asked about Lovecraft, Cisco uh, said, Lovecraft's horror stories ser- seldom stop with the characters. There's always a leap that throws the snare of Jeopardy over the reader as well. Um, Lovecraft stories detail specific events but lay out implications which stand even if the events are fictional. And what I found really interesting about the way this book ended, even though uh, I wasn't on board with everything, like I wasn't on board with all the, what the book was up to, um, the like this evil testament narrator Judas character who was like, I, I wanted to betray you all and I wish I could have had more time to do even more of it, um, is at least saying like, hey... What is what's gonna happen? How are you gonna feel when the oppressed and powerless like are aware that there is a force they can harness and come for you? And it's like a it's a dark question, and perhaps you know it's confined to the specifics of this book in in some ways. But it is this sense of like if you don't like this view of what could of what needs to happen, like what are, would you do instead? Um, it is not an uplifting book. It is not a, an optimistic book, but I. It, it's like people who are out of power, or people who are uh, marginalized, or people who are, you know, singled out. They have legitimate gripes, and this book carries to them carries that to like a fantastic apocalyptic narrative, um, that doesn't present any like answer for what you could have done along the way. But I think okay. I think the questioning of the reader does a little bit of that of like, okay, if you are reading this and and finding this like collapse of society horrific, what are you gonna do anything about it? Joe Reader? You think you're better than me? Or Jill Reader or whoever. Or whoever. That's true. There is a like, you think you're better than me? They're gonna come get you. <laughs> Uh, which is they yeah, they gonna get you. They gonna get you. <laughs> they gonna get you. Uh, and then the only other thing I want to say about the book is the uh one of the hallmarks of his style, which he has gotten from a couple of different writers, but uh seems to have only gotten stronger in his later work. Uh, from what I've read about him, is there's a lot of repetition that happens. Um like deliberately just using the same phrase like in four or five sentences over and over again. Sure. Um, and I'm going to find a quick uh, example of it when we get introduced to the blacksmith. Here we go. Um, so he's learning about the blacksmith. And the the main thing about Blunder is that he's really bad at blacksmithing because he's so strong and breaks everything. He struck yeah, every- me, me too. That's why I'm not a blacksmith. That's why um, I don't play f- professional football too. Is because I'm just too good, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let me on the team. You just hurt everybody. True. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He struck everything he worked with. He worked with such force that he could be heard a quarter of an hour before he was seen. He could be heard everywhere in that part of Lohawk, even from our water tower. And then, like three sentences later, uh, 
The blacksmith barely made anything worth selling uh, because he simply pounded away without any restraint, striking everything with such force he ended up battering his horseshoes and shovel blades and so forth all out of shape. Uh, He was enormous, and he struck his iron with so much force that sparks showered out onto the street. Uh, I watched him beat out a nameless thing, part of a carriage maybe. He struck it with more and more force until finally he seized his long sledgehammer at its end and leaned over backwards until the sledgehammer's head grazed the ground behind him. Um... He does this, this is like one of the more benign examples of it, but he does this kind of loping poetic repetition that feels more akin to how certain streams of thought than it is to like narrative uh, goals. Like he's not, sure. he's not repeating it to like uh, give you new information in each time. It's actually deliberately to like keep your mind centered on an idea as he shifts back and forth from like a from different angles on it um, okay it can make at the best of times in this book it can be sort of hypnotic and kind of counterbalance the fact that the narrator is often very like light on details or descriptive prose uh, at its worst it can be hypnotizing to the point of wait what's happening who am I <laughs> who are we talking about um, mm-hmm. and why so that that also, I think to your one of your first questions, Andrew, that is like capital W weird. Like the the lens through which we experience the narrative is like deliberately funhousey, like funhouse okay. mirrory. Sure. Um, in a way that to to the one of the earlier points I made, like a narrative fantasy does not do that because it wants mm-hmm. you to make sure that you know all the rules because the rules inform the themes of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, yeah, this is a dark book about eating ghosts and having superpowers and using them to wipe out cities because you hate cities. Um, I, that's the part that weirds me the most. <laughs> it's just like the indiscriminate city hate. And again, maybe that's just come from me, a city dweller. But well, there is there are one or two sections. I, try, I try not to demonize yes anybody based yes. on where they live. Sure. Because I originally from rural America and then also from New Jersey. So I've spent like my <laughs> most of my life in places where people don't think very much of the places where I live. <laughs> that's that's actually a very good outlook that you've cultivated then. Um, but he does, there are one or two lines later in the book where he like is deliberately complaining about being so close to all these different people and people speaking in like languages that are malformed versions of his language and i think that is meant to be gross like i don't think that like cisco is certainly endorsing that behavior i think that's the character that he's trying to create though um but it does that is also part of like yo narrator i cannot track with what you're selling right now because there's even a, a section where he's like deliberately talking about hating being in cities because he gets on like a coach and it's filled with a bunch of people that just make him feel uncomfortable and gross and there's so many of them and i'm like i i I like that about the subway like yeah like i get (laughs) i get it but and you don't have to like that but is that a reason to like eat all their souls (laughs) i don't know i don't don't think think so so. don't think that that's true so we're gonna wind up we're gonna wind down whichever way you want to wind we're gonna wind sideways uh if you have thoughts about soul eating or Pokemon and poison types, you can reach out to us on social media, uh, twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. Uh, got, we got a whole track of like weekend reads this week. Uh, so check our Twitter for like a bunch of replies on that. Um, people are sharing books they're reading. That's always fun. I also want to thank specifically Charlotte, Albie, April, Michael, Cheyenne, Aaron, Jamie, Glenn, Lawrence, Leanne, LZ, Amanda, Becca, Becky, Katie, Rachel, Sarah, Carol, Gretchen, Aaron, Brendan, and Starfish Chick for other comments on social media this week. You can also write us an email, overduepod at gmail.com. Andrew, what else do people need to know about the show? People can find out more stuff at OverduePodcast.com. We've got a bunch of links to things you can use to subscribe to the show. Um, new episode or uh, episode recommendations for new listeners. Um, and then one thing I wanted to bring some extra attention to this week was um, we've got a live show coming up on October 14th in Fairfax, Virginia. This is in the like DC Baltimore-ish area. It's as, it's as far south as I think we've done a live show so far. 
Um, it's part of the Fall for the Book Festival. Um, if you want to find out more, we've got a Facebook event you can find on our Facebook page. And um, there's information at fallforthebook.org. It's a free show. I don't think seating is unlimited, but um, but yeah, it's it's right around the corner. I'm reading Beauty and the Beast, the book, Woo. and I think it's going to be a good time. So be our October, guest. Be our guest. October 14th um, from 3.30 p.m. to about 4.30 p.m. Um, and yeah, find more stuff on our Facebook or at fallforthebook.org. That's it. That's it, everybody. Uh, next week, I am reading um, Bridget Jones's Diary by Helen Fielding. Is that right? That's probably yes, Helen, right. Helen Fielding. Right. Um, it's gonna be. We're gonna talk about our weight. We're gonna talk about smoking. We're gonna talk about our dating lives. It's gonna be a fun time. Okay. Um, we'll be back with that next Monday, everybody. Until then, a try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.